John was the prior of um, the new Carmelite convent in the Alhambra in Granada. Have, have any of you been to the Alhambra? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a remarkable place, and if you haven't, I really urge you to go there. And um, especially in the, in the context of John, it's an important place because the poems, the John of the uh, the Dark Knight of the Soul, the Spiritual Canticle, many of them were written um, while he was there in the Alhambra. So if you ever go to the Alhambra, you know it's beauty, fountains, the flowers, the birds. This very much inspired John. But I mention all that because when he was there, um, he also redirected some of the water from the fountains into the monastery vegetable garden to water the veg very practical sort of use. But he was actually quite a good bricky. He was good at laying bricks. And, um, and once when he was doing this, um, two of the Carmelite fathers walked past and they saw him and said, ah, yes, un hijo de vero labrador, a son of a true farmer. True. And, and again, you'll know from, from Teresa that uh, in the 15th, 16th century, it was quite common for converso families to buy a lineage. And often they would buy a Christian lineage that um, you purchase a Christian lineage that traced them back to good Christian stock. And they were all peasants, basically. I mean, the, the Christians had very little positions of responsibility in mid medieval Spain. They were, they were farmers, more or less. So by, the, by the, the two discalced fathers saying, um, oh, you're the son of a good farmer stock, it's clearly saying you're from good Christian northern, northern Spanish stock. And uh, John replied, apparently, no, soy un hijo de un pobre tejido. No, I'm the son of a poor weaver. And that was his mother. Alvarez. And um, by saying that, that was actually, that would have been quite a shameful thing to admit. And also weaving was the profession of, of Jews and Moors. So again, like with Teresa, we don't know, there's no smoking gun, we don't know a lot of the truth here, and we never, probably never will. But with little remarks like that, you can begin to... And the way he was treated within the order, you can begin to build up a sort of uh, photo-fit picture of who this person was. Certainly that he saw himself, and with good reason, to be something of an outsider, or something of, a, of a, a, an underdog, um, you know, what we would call a minority within the society with which he was born. As I say, he was born on the 24th of June, feast day of John the Baptist, so that's why he got his name, John. His father, Gonzalo de Ipez, belonged, as I say, to a wealthy family of silk merchants from Toledo. And it's classic Mills and Boone stuff, really. He met his mother, Catalina Alvarez, uh, who was a poor weaver, in Medina del Campo, and they fell in love. Um, she was the, you know, uh, just working for, for the family firm, as it were, as a weaver. He was the management son. And they married in 1529, despite bitter opposition from his family, 
who immediately disinherited him. And despite this financial insecurity, he gave up um, his quite well-off life and lived a much, low, much more lowly life with his uh, wife. And they had three sons. John was the youngest of three brothers. And when John was three years old, uh, his father died. So we can imagine um, what sort of effect that had on him. Catalina was obviously reduced to extreme poverty in those days. There was no social security, certainly not in Spain. And she went round the family to Toledo, Torrijos, Galvez, Arevalo, trying to get assistance from her husband's family. Uh, but needless to say, none of them offered her any assistance whatsoever. She settled in Medina del Campo. Medina was a famous market. You know, the, again, Arab, it's an Arabic word, Medina. It's the same in um, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, Medina, and Mecca. And Medina del Campo means the, the market in the fields, the market of the fields. And Catalina moved there because, obviously, uh, she would be able to bring up the family better in, those, in that circumstances. However, they must have been um, living in very, very reduced circumstances. And when John was eight or nine, his brother Louis died. And it seems to be that his brothers died of some sort of form of malnutrition. They just didn't have enough food. So there's a great deal of hunger around. John himself, um, as the son of a poor weaver, and um, not much was expected of him. And he went to what, to what was called the Catechism School, which is a sort of form of orphanage, really. And this is where he learned his bricklaying skills, because the children who went to this school weren't, you know, they were considered a bit thick up here. They weren't, they weren't expected to, to do achieve much in life. So as well as bricklaying, he was taught carpentry, tailoring and painting through apprentice. So he would have been put in apprentice to local um, masters of those, those areas. <coughs> but uh, he learned to read and write at this colegio and he got employment at the local hospital. And he was obviously a bright kid and he obviously, it obviously came across that there was something special about this guy. And um, the hospital he got work at was called Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. And it was basically a, a plague hospital, or a, what we would call today a hospice. It was a place where people came to die. It had 45 to 50 beds, and it put, served the poor, quote, with ulcers and contagious diseases, including the newly rampant syphilis. This is the time of the conquistadores going off to South America and as well as bringing back gold and tomatoes and potatoes, they also brought back all the diseases from the locals, including syphilis, which at that time was an incurable disease. So you can imagine this young boy, 13, 14-year-old boy, working in this, you know, it's equivalent of people 
um, in the 1980s when people had AIDS and there was no cure known to it, this similar sort of um, extreme um, suffering. And it was said that he used to tell stories to the patients and sing them songs to help their suffering. So again, from an, uh, another thing that's remarkable in his story, he always had a very strong pastoral manner. Throughout his life, we get accounts of him working with people, especially people in, in extreme distress, either physical distress or mental distress. And he had a feel for it. I mean, obviously, you know, working in that place at such a young age, he obviously picked up how to care for people who were um, severely ill. Medina at the time was also famous for having one of the new fangled Jesuit colleges. Again, in contemporary uh, uh, parlance, you think of uh, Tony Blair's academies, you know, his inner city academies. When I used to live in Liverpool, I was up there giving a talk a couple of months ago, and they, they built, built this great big academy in the middle of the, this very deprived area. It's quite interesting to see it happening. But I think that would have been equivalent for these Jesuit schools. They were, they were plonked right in the poorest areas of towns, and they were given very, very good staff. And uh, John was lucky to have some, some extremely able Jesuit scholars teaching him. And here he was taught um, uh, metaphysics, Latin, and the Spanish classics, as well as literary writing and technique. And when we come on to look at the poems later, uh, we can see very clearly the influence of the, the great Spanish classics. He, he obviously loved them, he studied them, as well as the, the Latin and Greek classics. classics. And this is a difference with, with Teresa, sort of compare and contrast. Teresa had very little formal education because it wasn't available for women at that time. John had quite a lot of formal education once he was in the stream. And you can see it in their writings. Teresa has a sort of gushing familiarity and immediacy so that she's in the room with you. John is that bit more uh, distant. He's a bit more scholastic. He thinks very, very carefully. Every single word in his poem is there for a reason. And they, they make a lovely um, compliment, the two of them, because their styles very much complement <coughs> each other. He also, uh, the, the administrator of the hospital, Don Alonso Alvarez, um, became something of his mentor. He obviously <laughs> saw he had a lot of potential and he um, paid for him to go to Salamanca, the great university of Salamanca, one of the four great university, uh, medieval universities, Bologna, um, Paris, Oxford and Salamanca, the four great medieval universities. And so he um, left the hospital in 1563 and somewhat to the surprise of... Um, of uh, Don Alonso, he joined the Carmelite Order of Santa Anna in Medina, aged 21 years old. And in 1564, he took his Carmelite vows with Alfonso present and became Juan de San Matia, John of Saint Matthias. He then went to the Jesuit 
Um, sorry, he then went to the college in Salamanca, San Andres. And we have him listed as an art student in Salamanca from 1567 to 1568. Again, we know that he was a bright boy because he became the, um, one of the prefects of studies. It was only one of the brightest boys that became um, prefects of studies. Salamanca at the time had 7,000 students. So it was a big place. And again, it was at the forefront of the humanistic Renaissance ideas that were coming into Spain. At um, Salamanca, he learned, as well as theology, um, ethics, astronomy, always a great love of his. He would often be found later on in life at night looking at the stars and studying the stars. Grammar, logic and music. And from six, uh, 1567 to 1668, he, uh, he studied theology. He was ordained priest in the spring of 1567. And he, it was noted he had a great love for solitude, quiet and the ascetic life. He then seriously contemplated joining the Carthusians. This is the most extremely uh, ascetical order within the Roman Catholic Church. However, fate, or the person of Teresa of Avila, and as you can imagine by now, Teresa of Avila was not someone you said no to, intervened. And in 1567, he met Teresa when he went back to Medina to the hospital to say his first Mass. Teresa was founding her first convent there. She immediately took a liking to him. I mean, she was about twice his age. She was 52. And she saw in him something that very few people, other people couldn't see, which is that he had the potential to be the founder of the discalced male Carmelites. So he took, uh, she took John under her wing, uh, under her wing, and took him to Bayerbelith, where she was founding her next foundation, and made him the confessor and chaplain. He remained there from August to October, and Teresa said, I am finally satisfied with the training of my novice, as she called him, <laughs> and sent, her off, sent him off to Duruelo, again not far from Avila, with four others to found the first discoused um, men's friary. He took the primitive rule, again you know all about that, and took his third name, Juan de la Cruz, by which we know him nowadays, John of the Cross. After a year of Duruelo, John and the community moved to Mantera de Abajo and established a novitiate for the new branch, the Carmelites, in Pastrano in 1570. And after a month there, he was named rector of 
the new, uh, of one of the colleges of the new University of Alcala in the Colegio de San Cirello. Again, clear that he was a bright, bright guy. From this time, there's an interesting incident. The novitiate had been founded quite, um, quite recently in Pastrana. John went off to Alcala to work in the university. But we have a record of him going back to Pastrano and telling the novice master that the, extre the um, regime for the novices was too strict. So again, we have this idea of John as very strict in his ascetical practices. He may have been strict in his ascetical practices on himself, but he certainly didn't want them imposed on other people. So we have an incident here where he suggests that the practices should be lessened somewhat, and that they're too harsh for the, the young men who were joining. In 1569, the Father Provincial of the Carmelites raised the status of the foundation to a priory with permission to receive novices. 1571, as you heard from Julienne, Teresa was elected prioress of the Encarnacion in Avila. And you remember all the hoof-bruhaha that that created. Teresa immediately had John appointed confessor of the Encarnacion. <coughs> and he spent the next five years living in a workman's hut on the edge of the property. He didn't live in the convent, but on the side. This was a very unpopular move with the uh, Carmelites of the ancient observants who, uh, sorry, the Carmelites of the mitigated observants who, again, you know all about, you know all about that? Uh, Julian explained all that? Yeah? Yeah, good. Partly because the post at uh, the Encarnacion was a paid post, which had traditionally been held by um, a Carmelite of the mitigated observance. So in a way, it's a bit of a union dispute. They were having their jobs taken by these uh, discalced. Avila, again, as you, you heard from Julienne last time, was also a hotbed of reform at this time. And um, I mentioned the Jesuit colleges. These are very much a consequence of the Council of Trent, the attempt by the, the Roman Catholic Church to reform itself in um, response to the reforms of the north of Europe. And in Avila, it seems to be a magnet for these reformers, not only Juan de la Cruz, not only Teresa of Avila, but we have Peter of Alcantara, you've heard about probably last time, Juan de Avila, another famous uh, preacher and uh, mystic, and um, many local ladies who, although they weren't members of official orders, had um, an important role to play in the reform. One of them we know of, Maria Diaz, who um, ended up actually living at the end of her life in Avila Cathedral. She had a little room constructed on the side of Avila Cathedral so she could spend her last days there. I think you could still see that today. But as I say, this was not... Um, uh, a time that was without problems. Although this reform was happening, there was this um, hotbed of reform, 
there was opposition, especially from those of the uh, mitigated observance. <coughs> In 1572, two apostolic visitors were appointed to the Carmelites by King Philip, who was always a, a, a supporter of John and Teresa, and one showed exceptional favours to the discalced. He even went as far as to give one of the uh, mitigated monasteries to the discalced. Not a, not a very popular move. <coughs> and new houses were forbidden for, for the uh, mitigated in Andalusia. The Discalce then went on to found three new foundations, Granada, which I mentioned in the grounds of the Alhambra, Seville and La Penuela. Well, things were going from bad to worse. And in 1576, the mitigated friars had tried to arrest John and have him removed from his position in uh, Avila. But the papal legate, Nicholas Ormanento, ordered that he be released. However, on Ormanento's death, John was re-arrested very, very quickly. Within, within 24 hours of Ormanento's death in 1577. John, at this point, was aged 35. And he was taken by cover of darkness from um, Avila over the mountains down to Toledo, right at the centre of Spain, the old ancient capital of Spain, the home of Teresa's ancestors, the home of John's ancestors. So, uh, um, you know, incredibly pregnant place in many ways. And you'll remember at this time um, that Teresa had been stopped from founding new foundations, and Teresa had been, remember, she went to Toledo and wrote the interior castle at the same time. So, throughout uh, Spain, 1575, there was this general um, resolution to suppress the reform. Poor old John was taken by night, as I say, and put in a monastic prison on the side of the convent of the mitigated observance in Toledo, overlooking the river Tajo. And as I said earlier, Toledo is very, very cold in the winter and very, very hot in the summer. So poor old John had nine months in this tiny little cell. It was about six foot by, by uh, eight foot. It's also been used as a monastic latrine beforehand. So it must have been pretty awful. It had one tiny window right up at the top. So you could just see, he says in his his memories of it, he could just see one or two of his beloved stars at night and he could just see the sun at certain hours of the day. When Teresa heard that John had fallen into the hands of the Carmelites and mitigated observance, she was said to have said, it would have been better if he'd have fallen into the hands of the Moors. At least they might have shown him some pity. <laughs> 
Of course, Teresa didn't know that uh, John was just round the corner from her, really, in Toledo. She was in one part of Toledo. He, if you actually look at the distance, they were very, very near to each other. Each night uh, after the uh, friars had finished their supper, um, John had his supper on the floor. He, had, he was given sardines and bread and water on the floor. And each night after they'd finished the supper, uh, they all, he had his cloak pulled down and they all lashed him, all of the friars, and gave him a lash. And so it went on for several months. Um, and the idea was to break him, you know, like, what do they call it, Abu Ghraib, Belmarsh, this sort of thing. What's that place? Guantanamo Bay. You know, you, 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 you deprive people. I mean, torture is very unoriginal in any place, whether it's America or whether it's England or whether it's Iraq or whether it's Spain. It's all the same. And it's to break people. And you deprive them of senses. You, the guards used to talk outside his, his cell about him being executed the following day. But it didn't have that effect. Although it broke him physically, and he died very young, he died at the age of 49. Um, spiritually, it, 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 it's a, it, something broke through. And in this time, um, halfway through his time, there was a change of jailers. And the new jailer was a, took a bit of pity on the poor fellow. And one thing that John asked for was some pieces of paper. He was given some very, very small pieces of paper and a pencil. And on that, he wrote the first verses of the spiritual canticle, Where Have You Fled, My Beloved? And uh, one of the first drafts of The Dark Night of the Soul. There's a lovely story, again, with John and Teresa, how much is myth, how much is reality, don't know. There's one lovely story that one night he was in the cell feeling particularly low and he heard coming on the breeze the sound of um, a young man returning home singing a song to his beloved and as this filtered into the cell he, it made him want to sing a song to his beloved, to God. I remember that that does happen actually. I was in, <laughs> we were in Toledo a few years ago on one of those trips and they had a night-long fiesta as they tend to and we were say, all saying our prayers. We were all doing our meditation at right at the top of the convent. And um, about 7 o'clock in the morning. And there was a, a group of lads returning home after the night on the tiles. And they started, just started singing this beautiful canción and this beautiful Spanish song. And I thought, well, that's, that, that, perhaps it was true. Perhaps John did, did hear that, that song. He managed to escape. Nine months later, um, by a combination of hard work, combination of luck, and combination of grace, I think, as well. In the traditional way, he, he tore up all his bed sheets into, into little strips and tied them all together, you know, like Zorro. And um, he, he, he managed to choose a time when the guard was off duty. He went down the rope that he'd made, and he ended up in the, the nun's garden of the, the convent next door, um, much to his horror. And then he scrambled up the wall again and finally got out of the nun's convent 
and uh, was walking the streets of Toledo. He was obviously very disorientated, but he managed to find his way to the Discal sisters. And when, they arri- when he arrived, uh, the Discal sisters were absolutely shocked. It was the middle of the night. They don't normally open, didn't know, normally open the door to anyone in the middle of the night. They let him in. And um, they were absolutely <coughs> terrified that um, the... Uh, mitigated friars would find him because they thought, well, that's where he'd go. So they hid him somewhere in the convent. It's a bit like the Sound of Music. Do you remember they hide the Von Trapp family in the convent? And uh, they put on the door of the convent, this tells you a lot about the nuns, they put on the door of the convent one of the sisters who was known for being able not to lie but to um, present the facts in a way, what would say, economical with the truth. So as soon as dawn came up, as soon as they discovered he'd, he'd fled, they arrived at the convent where sister, I can't remember her name, sister was there, and they said, is Frau John, Frau John of Juan de la Cruz here? And she said to them, it would be very unusual for a monastic friar to be in a convent of ladies. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she saved her soul from the venial sin of lying and, and saved poor old John. He spent the next few months um, in, in, in secret in the convent, recovering. He looked after him. And he wrote out more of his songs, his poems. He told them about his experience. And then they, they had him whisked away down to Andalusia. And uh, he, in 1578, he ended up in the monastery of El Calvario in Andalusia. This is where he wrote the full draft of the Dark Night of the Soul, the Noche Escura, and he began work on the commentary of the ascent of Mount Carmel. In the next two years, um, he the Discals became a separate entity. They were given, obviously, Rome and Spain realised that it couldn't carry on with this you know, civil war between the two branches, and um, they gave them separate status, although they weren't given the right to be a separate order. And in 1581, the Discals held their first legal chapter. Geronimo Gracia was, a, was elected the first provincial, and John was elected as one of the definitors. That was the sort of um, the sort of little group that ran. Or I think there were four of them, four definitors. John's mother, who obviously he was very attached to, died at about this time in 1582, when he was um, aged 40. It's interesting that you, I told you his one brother died of malnutrition when they were young. His mother died at 40. He kept very close to his surviving brother, right to the end. We have a lovely story again. His, and his brother um, was a bit, you know, we call, what we used to call in the 70s, education subnormal, you know. He, he was a bit, uh, he wasn't a bright boy. And, um, but John was very close to him, very attached to him. And we have a story in um, Salamanca, uh, sorry, in Segovia, when John was up there, that his brother used to come and visit him. And the last time they met, because John was being posted back down to Andalusia, it was a very emotional time. So he was very close to his family. 
1582, he was elected prior of uh, Granada, as I've told you. And there he went with Ana de Jesus. Ana de Jesus is one of those tough women. And when tough daughters of Teresa, shock troops of Teresa, and uh, when they first met, they didn't get on very well. Um, I don't know why. But over the time, they, they got very close to each other. And Anna used to ask him, they used to have long conversations, Anna used to ask John about these strange poems he was writing, because Anna wasn't, uh, you know, she wasn't a great intellectual, she was a much more practical woman. But she would ask John about these uh, poems, and John wrote a lot of his commentaries for Anna and dedicated them for Anna. So often when you listen to the commentaries, uh, it's good to hear them as though John is explaining the poems to, to Anna de Jesus. She, after Teresa's death and after John's death, took the reform to France and the Netherlands. So she's a terribly important woman in that she <coughs> brings the Carmelite spirituality into France. And I don't know, I don't think you do, do you do the French spirituality on the... I don't know do. Jean-Pierre Jean de Cossard, Francis de Sale, all these sort of people, direct influence there from, from Anna de Jesus. Uh, to, and it allowed Teresa and John's ideas into France. There's another lady as well, Anna de Pen, Pen, Penalosa, who was a wealthy widow, very important wealthy widows in the history of the church. And uh, Anna de Peña Loza um, helped uh, found some of the Discalced convents and uh, she in fact paid for the convent in Segovia, where John ended up later. He remained for six years in Granada, in this beautiful setting, and he said that they were the happiest of his life. He, he really liked it there. We have some very interesting stories. I mean, this is more of a footnote than anything. But there were still Muslims in Granada. In fact, it was still quite a Muslim city. We have reports from a traveller in Granada at this time um, saying that the women in Granada still wore Muslim costume, still wore the complete uh, <coughs> cloth, you know, so you could only see the eyes. Uh, so it was still a very Arabic country. And we also know, we have a report that next to the convent of sisters in uh, Granada, there was an old um, Sufi mystic woman. Sufis are the, the mystics of the Islamic tradition. And um, so these people were around. And, uh, of course, Spain, and Al-Andalus, had been famous for its Sufi mysticism within Islam. And some scholars have suggested that this uh, Islamic Sufi mysticism is also to be found in John of the Cross. And again, if you're interested, I can give you the, the references. I've read a lot of the countries. A lot of the countries are in Spanish, not English. Uh, there is one in English, but most of it's in Spanish. I'm still not convinced, but the problem is I don't speak Arabic. The Arabic scholars suggest that there is uh, similarities. And there are, interesting enough, there are parts of the poetry, it, some of the poetry is odd, you know, with, with most of the stuff that Teresa and John write. 
Um, you could find antecedents in the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition. But there are certain metaphors, analogies and passages in John which you can only find in the Sufi literature. Now John would have known Hebrew, but I doubt if he'd have known Arabic. So if there was some... Again, it's like Teresa with her castle, you know, and I'm sure you talked about that with Julia. You know, the, the fact that you find the castle symbolism not only within Judaism, but in Islam. Again, we don't know what's going on here. I suspect there's probably more interchange between these three traditions than we think. And um, it could have happened orally. You know, they could well have picked this stuff up uh, through conversation. But as I say, we know that there were Muslims in Granada at that time, and we know that uh, Sufi mysticism was practiced still in Granada at the time, so it was there. In 1584, he finished the spiritual canticle and wrote a commentary for Ana de Jesus. He also wrote his last great work, The Living Flame of Love, a commentary for which was written in 1585. The other thing about John is that a number of his works are lost. Um, later on, like Teresa, he was examined by the Inquisition and we suspect that he, his works were burnt or destroyed by, his, uh, by the sisters or by him himself. And we know that there's one book that's, that's missing called The Secret of the Solitary Bird. And we, do, we don't know what that book contained. Um, but again, this is an interesting um, title because this title, we also know of an Arabic Sufi uh, text on the solitary bird and using the solitary bird as a metaphor for the soul's relationship to God. So again, perhaps that book contained teaching that was just too unorthodox and had to be destroyed. We don't know. We don't know. But having said that, it was his anniversary in 1991 and a previously unknown manuscript turned up in 1991, so you never know. One of these manuscripts might turn up in a, in a junk shop in Madrid. He, as I say, he wrote a great deal uh, in, at this time. 1588, uh, there was a general chapter discussed, and Doria was elected as vicar general. John, the first definitor, and the prior of Segovia, who moved down to Segovia. His brother, this is where his brother Francis came regularly. Segovia is well worth a visit if you ever get a chance because it's the last, as I say, he was, a, he was a good builder and bricky and it's the last convent, it's the convent that he built the most of and in fact the garden, a lot of the garden was designed by him. So it's a, it's a beautiful place to go and you still get very much his spirit there. For some reason the Vicar General uh, Doria didn't, take, didn't like John, whether it was jealousy or whatever. And he also didn't like Garcia and, and wanted them both removed from the order. He uh, said that the trouble with Gracian was that he wanted too much uh, apostolic activity in the order. Doria wanted more uh, contemplative um, action. Gracian made a fruitless appeal to Rome on his way to Rome, was captured by Turkish pirates, spent two years in prison, and finally rejoined the ancient observance. 
and a case was begun against John. So poor old John, towards the end of his life, having founded the order, there was a case against him being chucked out of the order. <laughs> Quite unbelievable, really. Poor, poor fellow, he had a lot to contend with. He, um, there was, I mean, when you read the accounts that went, the, the letters that went to Inquisition, I mean, they're just laughable. There's one of them that describes how um, he would visit the nuns in Segovia, take all his clothes off, the nuns would dance naked in front of him, and then he would retire to his room and they'd come in one by one to, to be sexually gratified. By I mean, it's sort of ludicrous, really. But these were taken very seriously. And, um, it's, you know, there was this real attempt to, to blacken his name. About this time, he became seriously ill, and he was moved to Ubeda, where he was greeted by hostility by the... Um, father in charge of the house. He died um, quite quickly, actually, and um, in, in quite a lot of suffering. At his deathbed, his, the prior um, had some sort of, I don't know, vision or whatever of, of the fact that John was a very holy man and um, broke down in tears and asked forgiveness. And he died on the 14th of December, 1591, at the age of 49. His canonisation was quite late. Remember, Teresa got canonised very quickly, remarkably quickly, really. John didn't get canonised till 1726, so they put 150 years later. It's quite a long time. And that is to do with the fact that he was considered, still considered quite suspect. And his name was often associated with heretical groups throughout the 17th century. And even today, you know, people will say that John of the Cross is on the, the edge of Christianity, that his, his doctrines aren't orthodox, which is, which is not true. In 1926, he was made a, a doctor of the church. So, what's going on here? What is happening uh, with John? Well, every time I approach this and talk about this, it, it throws up new, new lights for me. And um, there are problems. It's not easy. I mean, Teresa is in a way, not easier, but she's certainly more open in many ways. And John is slightly more cryptic. Um, and to help sort of explain it in a way that might be helpful for you, knowing your background and your interests and, and the nature of this course, um, I came across recently uh, a let some letters by B. Griffiths. And you're, I think there's a, a, a session on B. Griffiths, isn't there? There's a whole session on him. So I won't go into lengths about him. But in the 1960s, he was in dialogue with a, a Jungian analyst. And he wrote some quite remarkable letters, and I'll share with you these letters. And I'm sharing them with you because I think he really gets the heart of what, what John is about in a language that we can understand uh, in the contemporary world. He writes, Now I must tell you something about prayer and the great revelation which has been made to me. 
During all this past year, I've been going through an extraordinary experience, which is summed up in the need for repentance. I believe that this is what is lacking in our prayers and in our life, the lack of awareness of the depth of sin. It is not a question of conscious sin, so much as of sin in the unconscious. I want very much to know what you think of this. I believe that in the depths of our unconscious lie the root of all sin. It is because we fail to recognise this that we make no progress in prayer. It represents an insuperable obstacle to union with God. I think it's worth taking some time just to stay or lean up against that statement, which is quite an extraordinary statement, this awareness of the depths of sin. And we know Bede is a very open, sort of cosmic figure, you know, beloved of New Age people. Um, and to hear him talking about the need for repentance and the depths of sin that lies in our hearts. I think that makes me sit up and want to listen. I think, well, this is interesting. Obviously important if he, a great sort of sage and wise person, uh, is talking about this. And I think the key is when he talks about the depths of sin lying in the unconscious and the importance of being aware of the unconscious. And I think this is what John is on about. Again, we have barriers to approaching John. We think of the gloominess, the dark night, the ascetic practice. And his story, you know, as I recall, is not a happy story. It's not a jolly story. It's quite a dark story. But I think what John does in his writings is he faces us up against the unconscious and the unconscious mode, I'm using our language, it's language he would not have known and been familiar with. And that's why I find Bede's writing helpful, because Bede is a 20th century man, he's a contemporary of ours, he speaks our psychological language, but he also understands the motivation of these, uh, our Christian forebears, our Christian ancestors. And this Bede describes it as a reordering of the unconscious and that the life of prayer is a reordering of the unconscious. And I think that's a lovely phrase to describe what, what John of the Cross is talking about. When I think about it, and I said that this is very much my view of it, I think that at the heart of us, we have uh, our roots in the earth. In, in the sewers, in the bowels, you know, we are people of the earth. You know what they say on, used to say on Ash Wednesday, remember that thou art dust, to dust thou shalt return. And whether we like it or not, we have those dark, unconscious, what the psychologists call chthonic elements within us. And when Bede Griffiths is talking about them, he says that there are two, he actually says there are three responses we can make to the unconscious elements within ourselves. The first one, um, perhaps a little unpolitically correct, he describes as the Hindu or Indian response. And he says that this is to enter into the chthonos, enter into the chaos the confusion, the darkness. 
He says, we may give way to the forces of the unpurified unconscious and become slaves to passion. The unconscious is full of demons and demonic powers which seek to possess us, as you say. Many people do not come up against these powers, no doubt consciously, but they are nevertheless possessed by them. Now these powers are uh, full of energy, they're very vital, and certainly in psychological work, following on from people like Freud and Jung, we are very much in touch with those forces. Any of you who have either involved in psychological work or in, been on the receiving end will know that the, the darker forces, if you like, the powerful forces of sex, of violence, lust and envy and so forth, will come up in that process. And also, in, uh, if you look, for example, at Tantric Buddhism, um, Tibetan Buddhism, or look at um, Tantric Hinduism, or animistic religions, or something like Contemble in, in Brazil, these religions very much work, any of you who've been part of or seen those ceremonies, you see them on the TV, um, will know that they're very... There was a wonderful series the end of last year, with this, didn't you see it called The Tribe, where this fellow went and lived in a tribe. It was amazing, because it was just about this. And he went through the tribal initiation um, with the elders, and they were very open to him. And the experience, it was interesting watching this very Western, very rational man trying to cope with this complete breaking up of the psyche as he entered into this, this unconscious place. And there's also a sort of madness there. I mean, when you meet psychotic people, you know, you see them on, on the streets quite often nowadays, uh, or on the tube and talking to them. So, I mean, sometimes the people have got a mobile phone in their ear and you think they're psychotic. Well, actually, they're, they're talking to their mother on the phone. Um, uh, but there is, it is close to the element of madness. You know, the, 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 these chthonic forces, when they're uncontrolled, can be terribly destructive. So that's one side of the story. On the other side of the story, we have the uh, repression of the forces. This is the route, if you like, often taken by the Western Christian mind, by us. <coughs> this is uh, B. Griffiths. The average Christian simply represses the unconscious like everybody else and lives from his will and reason. This is why his life is so uninspiring. He didn't... <laughs> He didn't mince his words, old B. Now, when I read this, I, I recognise a lot of this in my own life. I think that we are the masters and mistresses of repression, especially English people. And um, we can, we can, it can draw our energy away. You know, I, I recently went through a period a few months ago where I was just constantly tired. I went on a holiday and I was even more tired when I came back from holiday. And... Slowly through meditation and talking with people, I realised that there was an unconscious thing that I was forcing against, really. And it was, it was like that um, woman in the Bible with the issue of blood. You know, it just drains all your energy away. And um, this is B. Griffiths again. He says, repression arises when the ego tries to suppress the instincts and establish mastery. But the ego itself is a more dangerous enemy than instinct. 
So although a certain amount of repression is important, because otherwise we've got this, this chaotic madness, on the other hand, too much of it can be, can be equally destructive and equally deadly, really. Deadening and deadly. So what's the answer? Well, Bede, I think, quite, I think he's on to something here. He suggests the role of religion. The role of religion, as it were, is to mediate between these two extremes and to act as a place where the uh, darker forces, darker parts of the self, can be made um, whole and can be incorporated and integrated into the self. We have these two words, diabolos. And I think that's an important clue, again, to what John and Teresa... I, mean, I would include John and Teresa together in, in this respect. What they're about. They're using symbols to bring the psyche back together again, to create some sort of integration between the conscious and the unconscious. And for Bede, um, he says, for Christians, this is expressed as the descent with Christ into the dark waters of the Jordan at baptism. We die with Christ so that we can live with Christ. And he says, I believe that in Christ alone, we can be set free from the unconscious. Baptism is a descent beneath the waters, a conflict with Satan, in which the soul is mystically identified with Christ, in which the demonic powers are defeated and the healing powers of the unconscious are realised to give birth to new life. And I share all that with you because I think this is, this for me, when I try and express what, uh, what John's on about, um, sums up, best of all, in, our, in, our, in ways we can understand what, what he's about. Well, let's look at the texts. Um, as I say, there are four writings. Uh, there are four, uh, three, actually three poems. The Dark Night of the Soul, <coughs> Noche Escura de la Alma. Uh, the Spiritual Canticle, Cantico Espiritual. And the Living Flame of Love, as well as many other poems. Um, but they, these are the three key ones. And there are uh, actually four commentaries. There's a commentary on the living flame of love, commentary on the spiritual canticle, and actually there's two commentaries on the dark night. There's one that's called the dark night of the soul, and the other one is called the ascent of Mount Carmel. But those, those two are both commentaries on, on the same poem. And um, at the beginning of the ascent of Mount Carmel, he says that this is a spiritual book with spiritual teaching. And he says that there are three sources for that teaching. Scripture, the sciences, and think of his learning from Salamanca and uh, from the Jesuit College, and experience. And he says that our spiritual life or our spiritual learning is based on those three sources. Scripture, Holy Scripture, 
what we know from the sciences, from our learning, from psych nowadays psychology, philosophy, sociology, and so forth, and our own experience. And he says, of the three, the most important is scripture. And he says this because the Holy Spirit speaks to us directly through scripture. So again, another uh, illusion about John Therese is that they're not scripturally based. You know, sometimes you hear, well, it's got nothing to do with scripture. Well, actually it has. And certainly John and Teresa as well, but John makes very explicit that scripture is the, the beginning and end of, of everything he says. And in a way, you can see all his writing as a commentary on, on Holy Scripture. He says that he has written this book because he has come across, remember his pastoral skills, he's come across in his, his experience that souls placed in what he calls this dark night are often confused and do not know what is happening. And he says that a, a spiritual director at this time um, can be more harmful than helpful. And he stresses that for spiritual directors, with people at this time in their spiritual development, that first of all, they must use the right language. Secondly, that they must not try not to be like the false comforters of Job. Do you remember them who when these terrible things happen to Job, and they say, well, you must have sinned somewhere in your life, otherwise, you know, you, these terrible things wouldn't be happening to you. And he says that there, when, when, when spiritual darkness comes upon someone, there is a tendency to think, oh, well, there's a, they're, not, they're not saying their prayers hard enough, or they're not going to church enough, or whatever. He also notes that people, when this happens to people, other people say that they are falling back or they're lapsing or they're going backward into retrograde. But he says that actually that's not the case. <laughs> that the, the, what he calls the dark night of the soul can be a great spiritual grace. And it's important to say here that the dark night of the soul is such a hackneyed expression. You know, if you, if you miss the train, you know, people say, oh, I've had a dark night of the soul or whatever. <laughs> John is using, as all these people, as same as Teresa, is using this language very, very precisely. And he's using it for a specific theological and what we would call psychological purpose. So what is this, this dark night of the soul? Well, he says that there are three signs of the onset of the dark night of the soul. This is from the commentary on the dark night, uh, book one, chapter nine. And he says that the first sign is that souls do not get satisfaction or consolation from the things of God. They do not get any out of creatures either. Since God puts a soul in this dark night in order to dry up and purge its sensory appetite, he does not allow it to find sweetness or delight in anything. So when we have this sense of dryness in prayer, uh, emptiness, loss of God in our lives it's not accompanied by a desire to go on holiday a lot or you know you don't suddenly have a desire to go to um, uh, Harrods or Selfridges and go you know do some retail therapy do you see what I mean you you don't the decrease in interest in spiritual things does not lead to a concomitant in, increase 
of interest in, in material things. And he says, if not only we have a drying of the spiritual interest, but also a, a drying of the material interest, then that could well be one of the signs of the dark night of the soul. But he says there are two other signs. The second one, he says, the second sign of the discernment of this purgation is that the memory ordinarily turns to God solicitously and with painful care. And the soul, I told you it wasn't a very good translation. And the soul thinks it is not serving God, but turning back because it is aware of this distaste for the things of God. So the second sign is that we've got this decrease of interest in prayer and God, but what pains us is uh, that we're losing God. The thing that terrifies us most is that we're losing our faith, that we're losing God. It's not so, oh, well, you know, I can't pray anymore. That's good. I can have a bit more of time now. I don't have to sit in meditation for two hours every day. No, no, no. On the contrary, what, what hurts us most is that we're, we're losing our beloved. We're losing God. And the third sign, he notes down, it says, the third sign for the discernment of this... This is typical John. I mean, it's so unlike <coughs> Teresa. Teresa, you've got these vast waters and fountains and lizards and snakes. And, you know, John, it's first sign, second sign, third sign. All the way through, he's using his scholastic theology. He, remember, he's the Salamanca professor, he's the Alcala professor. He, he, knows his, he knows how to give a lecture. The third sign, he says, for the discernment of this purgation of the senses is the powerless, powerlessness in spite of one's efforts to meditate and make use of the imagination, the interior sense, as was one's previous custom. At this time, God does not communicate himself through the senses as he did before by means of the discursive analysis and synthesis of ideas, but begins to communicate himself through pure spirit by an act of simple contemplation. And... This is interesting. Have you done Ignatius? Yeah, yeah. This is interesting in terms of, if you look at it in Ignatian terms, because if you remember with Ignatius, the faculty of the imagination was terribly important. And, and, and Ignatius um, said, we, we need to cultivate the faculty of imagination. We need to go to the stable. We need to see the baby Jesus. We need to smell the the hay, you know, and, and, and listen to the animals chomping the hay. You know, and we get right in there. John is saying at this time, in the time of the dark night, the faculty of imagination and what he calls discursive analysis disappears. We find we can no longer pray in the manner to which we were accustomed. And uh, he gives a good description of this. This is... Trouble with John and this, you have to keep jumping between these two commentaries because he says some things in the dark night and not in the ascent and vice versa. So you have to keep leafing between the two. This is in uh, book two, chapter 15 of the ascent. When the spiritual person cannot meditate, he should learn to remain in God's presence with a loving attention and a tranquil intellect, even though he seems to himself to be idle. Well, little by little and very soon, the divine calm and peace with a wondrous sublime knowledge of God enveloped in divine love will be infused into the soul. He should not interfere with forms or discursive meditations and imaginings. 
Otherwise, his soul will be disquieted and drawn out of its peaceful contentment to distaste and repugnance. So if we've got these three things, we lose an interest in material and spiritual things. We solicitously turn towards God and we lose this more structured, um, discursive prayer and go into a quieter, uh, less structured prayer, then he says that we may well be entering into the dark night, what he calls the dark night of the soul. And that dark night is in terms of what I began by saying at the beginning, in terms of purification of the unconscious. There's a purificating activity, and it's an act where the unconscious starts to bubble up. And we need to, we need, as B. Griffith says, we need to be, have those parts of ourselves redirected towards God. I'll give you another example of how, how he works. I mean, this is obviously just a um, Cook's tour tonight. But uh, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8, he takes the... Um, I won't read you all, all of this account because it, um, it's, we haven't got enough time. It's too long. But in the book, book 8 of Ezekiel, there is the um, point where the prophet is taken to the temple... And there he's shown three things. First of all, he sees um, the elders of the temple, of the house of Israel. As it it says, 70 elders of the house of Israel were standing in front of the idols, among them Jazaniah, son of Japan. Each one censer in hand, the fragrance of incense was rising. Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, each in his painted room? He took me then to the entrance to the north gate of the temple of Yahweh, where women were sitting, weeping for Adonis. He said, Son of man, do you see that? You will see even filthier things. He then led me to the inner court of the temple of Yahweh, and there at the entrance to the sanctuary of Yahweh, between the porch and the altar, there were about 25 men with their backs to the sanctuary and their faces turned to the east. They were bowing to the east towards the sun. He said to me, son of man, do you see that? It is not bad enough for the house of Judah to do the filthy things, but they fill the country with violence and provoke my anger further. And uh, John provides a very interesting commentary on that. He says that the reptiles in this account represent the thoughts of abject earthly things and of all creatures, the thoughts, intellect. The women represent the appetites coveting that which the will is attached to. The will. And the old man, preserving and reflecting on these things, are the memory which turns back to God. So again, notice, remember Teresa with her lizards and her snakes running all over the place and the way she uses it. John uses lizards and snakes in a very, very different way. And he's using a scholastic formulation, the scholastic psychology of memory, understanding of will. And that in our, and this relates to Bede, in our prayer, all levels of the psyche, the thinking, the intellect, the images we see, the will, our appetites, our desires, and our memory, all of them have to be turned. Remember those gentlemen who 
who have their back to the, to the sanctuary of Yahweh, they have to be turned round so they're facing the right way. And you get this theme time and time and time again in John, this idea that you have to keep turning round, reordering, have everything um, redirected into the right shape. It's very Thomistic. Thomas Aquinas, the famous Dominican theologian, said, grace builds on nature. Or as a, a northern priest used to say to me when I was a little boy, God doesn't make rubbish. Um, <laughs> and basically, you know, whatever we've got in our psyches, our most murderous passions, our most sexual fantasies, our jealousy, <coughs> our hate, whatever it is, it all can be directed towards God. There's nothing, there's no rubbish there. You know, God don't make it rubbish. You know, everything could be directed towards it. It's a very optimistic view of human nature, actually. It's a terribly optimistic view of human nature. And like with B. Griffiths, he says that this is a difficult task. It's not easy. You know, we, um, we, it doesn't come naturally to us as, as human beings. And that's where we get these famous... This is in chapter 13, book one of the Ascent, the famous um, uh, lines from John. To come to the pleasure you have not, you must go by a way in which you enjoy not. To come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. To come to the possession you have not, you must go by a way in which you possess not. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. And in Spanish, nada, 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 nothing, nothing, nothing. When you turn towards something, you cease to cast yourself upon the all. For to go from all to the all, you must deny yourself of all in all. For in coveting nothing, nothing raises it up, and nothing weighs it down. Nada, nada, nada. Because it is the centre of its humility. And so he goes on. I mean, it's a very... Um, very intense, you know, purgation he's talking about. But before we say this is sort of, you know, a charter for masochists, and this is the thing, this is why I wanted to concentrate on the spiritual canticle rather than the dark night, <laughs> because again, he does suffer from this image of being a, a masochist saint. Um, it's important to say that he says that this uh, reordering of the senses, this returning to God, is only obtained by a higher pleasure we don't just we don't you know cross our legs and think of england you know we've got to we've got to we've got to have what he calls a more intense enkindling of another and better love love he says of one's heavenly bridegroom this is necessary he says for the vanquishing of the appetites and the denial of pleasure by finding his satisfaction and strength in this love, a man or woman will have the courage and constancy to deny readily all other appetites. So it's actually saying that by having these experiences of the love of God and the bounty of God, that will help us redirect our uh, more unconscious, more wayward elements towards God. And he says, this is not the appropriate section for a description of those other uh, pleasures, nor would it be possible. Of the nature of these longings of love or of the numerous ways they occur at the outset of the journey to union. It is better to experience all this and meditate upon it rather than to write about it. 
very John saying. And that, in a way, is where the Dark Knight and the Ascent ends. It ends at the, the end of the period of purgation. But that's where the spiritual canticle begins. And the, the um, spiritual canticle is a very um, positive approach. I've done you a copy, which, as I say, let me just find my notes. It was begun uh, in prison with the first lines and completed in Granada. Um, the majority of the poem is to do with the mystical union. Only the first, uh, first stanzas are to do with the purgation, with the uh, nada. Verse ones, 1 to 4 are concerned with purification. 5 to 13 are concerned with the illumination. And verses 14 to 40 are concerned with the spiritual union. So over two-thirds of the poem are concerned with the spiritual union. I've brought you some um, icons uh, done by the Carmelite sisters in uh, Lebanon. They're from the uh, Carmel of Harissa. We start here and we, we go like this. And they take the verses. And I thought we, in the short time we've got left, if we could just read, uh, we won't have time to read the whole poem, but let's just read uh, a few poems. They say that the, the um, icons begin with the picture of John in the habit of the Carmelites. The saint is in the grotto of the mountains with the double symbolism of the ascent of Mount Carmel and the dark night. They say the white of the saint contrasts with the dark of the grotto to represent the state of purification attained by the saint. Below in the rock are representations of the ladder of ascent, the scala secreta, and the cross, the leaning tree represents the cross, the arbol de la vida, the tree of life. On the left of the sage is La Fuente que mana y corre, the fountain that runs and flows. And on the top left is Christ, a vision recorded by the saint in Segovia. And Christ offers the uh, flame of love. On the right is the church. And at the top of the mountain, the height of mystical contemplation, there is the Theotokos, the mother of God, the virgin is the Virgin of Mount Carmel, offering the scapula of the Carmelites as protection. The face of John is based on an old sketch from Biodelith. The sisters say it represents a face transfigured by love. And this is the first. Each icon, they've taken a traditional um, iconography from orthodoxy and used it as the basis for... Um, for their, their icons. So this one represents the first um, verse. Could someone just read that? Where have you hidden? Where have you hidden, beloved, and left me moaning? You fled like the stag after wounding me. I went out calling you and you were gone. Thank you. So remember this was written in uh, his cell in um, Toledo. Uh, 
uh, in his great suffering. And this is the place of unknowing, the place of the dark night. The stag, he says, shows himself and then vanishes. And the wound of love is the most terrible of wounds because after it, we cannot have uh, anything else to replace it. And the sisters say that the uh, icon is the icon of the ascension. Christ ascends in the mandola and um, the beloved expresses her grief. The next icon, um, icon two, represents the next verse. Could someone read that? Shepherds. Shepherds. Shepherds, you that walk through the sheep forest to the hill, if by chance you see him, I love Tell him that I see him suffer and die. Thank you. And uh, could someone read the next line? Seeking my love. Seeking my love, I will head for the mountains and for water signs. I will not gather flowers, nor fear wild beasts. I will go beyond strong men and frontiers. Thank you. And John says at this point a divine dissatisfaction has entered the soul. It doesn't want to pick flowers from, from this world. All it wants is the beloved. And he says that the icon represents the soul fleeing from this. Next verses, four and five, anyone? From the woods and thickets, planted by the hand of my beloved. O green meadow, coated bright with flowers, tell me, has he passed by you? Pouring out a thousand graces, he passed these groves in haste. And having looked at them, with his image alone, clothed them in beauty. And the sisters have taken the image of the Pantocrata and the seven days of creation, Christ in, in all things. John says, The soul thereby advances in the knowledge of God by considering his greatness and excellence manifested in all creatures. Remember John, the astronomer, the lover of nature, um, he used to say it was important to find God, like the old monks, in the book of creation, in, in all that's around. This stanza embodies a meditation upon the elements and other inferior creatures and on the heavens together with the other material things in them, which God created, and also upon the heavenly spirits. The next icon represents verses 6, 7 and 8. Could someone read that? Ah, oh, who has the power to heal me? Now wholly surrender yourself. Do not send me any more messengers. They cannot tell me what I must hear. All who are free, tell me a thousand graceful things of you. Or wound me more and leave me dying. Oh, oh I don't know what behind their stand. How do you endure a life not living where you live and being brought near death by the arrows you receive from those that, that which you conceive of your beloved? Thank you. And here we're moving into the illuminative uh, phase. 
There's nowhere to go just to be in the presence of God. Where can we go, Lord, he quotes, except to you? No more knowledge is required. And the icon reflects Mary and Joseph in deep contemplation before the nativity. The blue colour represents the deep mystery of the being we hereby received. Next icon represents verses 9, 10 and 11. Could someone read that? Why, since you wounded this heart, don't you heal it? And why, since you stole it from me, do you leave it so, and fail to carry off what you have stolen? Extinguish these miseries, since no one else can stamp them out. May my eyes behold you, because you are their light, and I would open them to you alone. Reveal your presence, and may the wisdom of your beauty be my death. For the sickness of love is not cured, except by your very presence and image. Thank you. And the nuns here use the icon of the transfiguration, representing uh, Moses and Elijah. The two are hinted at at the icon by the burning bush at Christ's feet and by the cave in the rocks where Elijah um, waited. Verse 12, someone? Oh, spring like crystal, if only on your over, your silvered over face would suddenly fall the eyes I have desired, which I then sketched within my heart. Is no, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine, yeah. John's comment is, the soul at this point feels that she is rushing towards God as impetuously as a falling stone when nearing its centre. The soul at this point began, begins to desire union. And here we begin to enter into the <coughs> imago dei, the, the face of God. We begin to reflect God. And that's why the nuns choose the Veronica icon. Veronica, the lady who, who, who uh, cleaned Christ's face on, on the uh, way to the cross and then received the image of Christ on her cloth. It's ten to nine, so those who need to leave will have to go now, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. I haven't reached the new state of union, just the state <laughs> of illumination. <laughs> the next um, icon... Uh, it represents verse 13. Withdraw then, beloved. Did someone read that? Withdraw then, beloved. I am taking flight. Return that dove. The wounded stag is in the sight on the hills, moved by the breeze of the Thank you. And here we are entering into the state of union. And the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of God, begins to be heard at this stage. And John says the soul suffers much at this stage because she is close to God at this point. This is very similar to the, the doctrine of the uh, dark night. And he says, the soul, like a dove, now hovers above the ground. She uses her mouth to cover her face as she is terrified by the sight of God 
but her right hand opens in acceptance. First eight represents, uh, sorry, the next icon represents verses 14 and 15, my beloved. My beloved is the mountains and lonely wooded valleys, strange islands and resounding rivers, the whistling of love-stirring breezes. The tranquil night at the time of the rising dawn, silent music, sounding solitude, the supper that refreshes and deepens love. Again, the most wonderful poetry here, beautiful images, <coughs> the lonely wooded valleys, the rising dawn, and so on. I'm going to, um, going to have to go rather quicker than I anticipated. <coughs> These are the next um, icons. I, we won't have time to read them all out. The catch, catching of the little foxes in the, uh, in the vineyard. Then the, um, the still, be still deadening north wind. South wind come, you that awaken love. These are the, uh, the winds of the Holy Spirit. The girls of Judea, the nymphas de Judea, they come about the flowers and roses. Hide yourself, my love. Then we have the swift-winged birds. Las aves lugores, lion stags and leaping roes, the mountain lowlands and river banks. These are the um, uh, uncontrolled passions. These are the elements of the unconscious that need to be directed back to God by the pleasant lyres and the siren song. Uh, there's the siren song, pleasant lyres. I conjure you to cease your anger and not touch the wall. The bride enters the sweet garden of her desire and rests in delight, laying her neck on the gentle arms of her beloved. And beneath the apple tree, there I took you for my own, there I offered you my hand and restored you. Our bed is in flower, Round, bound around with the linking dens of lions and following your footprints and so on we go go down to um, verse 29 and 30 last one Gathering the uh, uh, Esmeraldas, the emeralds, on the cool mornings here. Gazing on the neck, the captivation. <coughs> and then coming to the states of union at the end. I've just, we've just got under five minutes. I'll just read you some of the last verses. She says at this point, a nightingale sings in a flowering almond, announcing the arrival 
of the eternal spring, while the flames rise on the thorn bushes without destroying it, representing eternity. And just to give you a quick example of how he uses his symbols, this is on the nightingale. He says, just as the nightingale, now listen to this, this is how he brings the poetry and scripture together. Just as the nightingale begins its song in the spring, once the wintry cold rain and changes have passed, and provides melody for the ear and refreshment for the spirit, so in this actual communication and transformation of love, which the bride has now attained in this life, in which she is freed from, protected against all temporal disturbances and changes, she feels a new spring in spiritual freedom and health. She hears the sweet voice of her bridegroom, who is her sweet nightingale. He would call one now disposed to make the journey to eternal life, and she hears his pleasant voice urge, Arise then, make haste, my love, my dove, my beautiful one, and come. For now the winter has passed, the rains have gone far off, the flowers have appeared in our land, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. Just to finish with those last final stanzas, um, I just want to give you a few lines, and this really is the end, um, from Gerald Brennan. Gerald Brennan was an English uh, member of the Bloomsbury Group who ended up in Spain. And talking of that last verse, he's speaking not as a theologian or as a spiritual writer, but as a, a literary theorist. Speaking of that last verse, he says, <coughs> there, hold on. Yet I do not think that in the whole of Spanish poetry there is a passage that calls up so vividly the Castilian Andalusian scene before the incidents of motor transport, the string of horses or mules descending slowly to the river, the vague suggestion of frontier warfare now over, that sense of endless repetition of something that has been done countless times be being done again, which is the gift of Spain to the restless and progressive nations. In these last two wonderful lines, with their gently reassuring fall, the horses descending within sight of the waters are lifted out of time and made the symbol of peace of this land of eternal recurrence. And I'll just read to finish those, those last lines uh, in English and Spanish. El, asp eh, el aspira del aire, el canto de la dulce filomena, el soto y su donere en la noche serena, con llama que consume de pena. The breathing of the air, the song of the sweet nightingale, the grove and its living beauty in the serene night, with a flame that is consuming and painless. No one looked at her, nor did a minadab appear. The siege was still, and the cavalry at the sight of the waters descended. Que nadie lo miraba, a minadab tampoco parecía. Y el cerco sosegaba, y la calpalaria, abiste las aguas, descendía.